Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is Thursday morning, ladies and gentlemen. We've reached almost the end of another week. Uh, it's been quite a remarkable week as well, of course. Uh, we're going to be joined this morning by Baroness Hoey, uh, who's an unaffiliated peer, of course, from the House of Lords. We've got lots to talk to her about, including, of course, Jeremy Hunt having a go at Joe Biden over the US green subsidies. Uh, we've got all sorts of things to talk about with regard to migrants. There was an announcement yesterday uh, in the comments from Robert Jenrick uh, that the new plan... Uh, Uh, which seems to change literally by the day. Every 24 hours is a new plan. Uh, The new plan is to move the migrants who are here illegally out of hotels and into kind of what are basically army camps and or former prisons. There's one in East Sussex. uh, There's one uh, somewhere up near um, Lincolnshire. uh, There's another one somewhere else in the country. Uh, Whether that makes any difference, we shall see. We'll obviously talk as well about what's going on in Northern Ireland because the, um, uh, the Windsor framework is now underway. I'm pretty sure the DUP... Um, are probably not going to be terribly happy about that going forward. So we'll find out from Kate precisely what goes on there. And we'll also go uh, back and forwards on the whole business of where we are in the economy. Uh, Because as many people will be realising as this month takes hold, uh, council tax has gone up ridiculously high. Uh, We've got energy prices going through the roof and no subsidy anymore for anybody. So people are going to be spending a lot more money in the next couple of months than they have been already. And they're getting nothing back from the government. I actually don't think the government should be giving us money, but that's another story. We'll also be talking about the countryside, because believe it or not, uh, there is a centre for hate studies. I think that's probably where the problems have all started. It's at the University of Leicester. Uh, We're going to be finding out whether the countryside is in fact racist. We will also uh, be asking the question why Rother Council, which is one of the councils in the southeast of England, on the south coast of this beautiful country of ours, in a place called Camber, have decided that a car park that used to cost something like 50p an hour is now going to charge you £30 a day for the privilege of parking there. We're going to talk about our energy policy. Harry Wilkinson is here from Net Zero Watch. We're going to talk to Craig McKinley, MP. Uh, We're also going to talk, of course, to uh, Mr Pothole, uh, because the government put out millions and millions of pounds in the budget to pay for potholes being filled in. We're going to find out from him whether any of that is actually happening. We're also going to talk about the gender ideology in schools report, uh, which has been put out there by uh, the Policy Exchange. We'll be talking to them uh, coming up at midday. And, of course, it's the Thursday Club with Helena Nicklin today. Uh, She's going to be pairing up some chocolate with some wine because Easter is around the corner. Uh, And if you're able to afford to go anywhere, good luck with that. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Also, we'll be having a rather wry look at what can only be described as the Lib Dems' latest plan to take over our local councils. Yes, it will be just as ridiculous as last year's, I have to, I have to tell you. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let us get it on. Do you know sometimes when you wake up in the morning you just think, oh, another day of this madness, another day of the crazed 
people that run this country coming up with new ideas. Grant Shapps was on uh, with Peter Cardwell earlier on this morning, making out that he got all the answers about net zero and why net zero is something that we absolutely need to do. Meanwhile, uh, we're hearing uh, from other countries in Europe that actually the electric car is not as clever as we thought it was. And the, the sort of mad race to change over from petrol and diesel to electric is actually not a very good idea. And they're thinking of putting it back a bit because, you know, really, by 2030, do you really think everybody's going to be driving around in electric cars? No, I don't think so either. Let's talk to Baroness Hoey, uh, unaffiliated peer, of course, uh, here in London right now, uh, having been in Belfast recently. Let's find out what's going on. Kate, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, I suppose we ought to start with your views, because I don't think we've had them yet, on the, um, uh, the Windsor framework, as it's rather laughably called. Um, what exactly do you think is happening in Stormont right now? What exactly is the DUP doing and, and where's it all going? Well, nothing's happening in Stormont because, of course, the <laughs> DUP are not going to go back in until they get their seven tests. And the Windsor framework, which uh, for some reason the Prime Minister seemed to think that it was going to you know, be loved by everyone, um, has not... Uh, met their seven tests. Right. And in fact, last night we had in the House of Lords the statutory instrument, which was the way that the government put through the changes to the protocol. They had a big vote in the Commons last week, which was overwhelming. I mean, Labour went absolutely... Well, Labour was supporting the Windsor framework before it was even published. Yes. So that was quite interesting. Uh, but last night we had to have the same debate in the Lords. Where we actually spent three, just over three hours on the debate last night. Um, the Commons only had 90 minutes. And of course, it was heavily defeated. Um, but it was a very interesting debate. And um, I, I was obviously one of the ones who voted for the um, what's called a fatal motion to actually stop it. Because the, really, the Windsor framework hasn't um, fundamentally changed the issue which is that Northern Ireland is being left under EU rules. Uh, therefore, we've lost our sovereignty. Therefore, we're, we're in a situation where the United Kingdom, the Union, is being gradually broken up mm. uh, by our own government's um, position. So I think we're in a situation where the council elections coming in May in Northern Ireland. We're going to have a visit of President Biden, although as someone... Actually, uh, not myself, but someone in the Conservatives said last night in the speech, that's if he can find his way and knows where he is when he comes to Northern Ireland. But we're going to have President Biden uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, so I don't think there's any chance of devolution coming back uh, in the near future. Because remember, Sinn Féin brought down Northern Ireland Assembly for three years and we didn't have, you know, governments condemning them, coming out, complaining mm. um, the way they have about the DUP. But it was an interesting debate. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, until Northern Ireland is fully back restored as part of the United Kingdom, we can't be left under under the EU because we let we joined the European Union or the common market, as it was then, as one United Kingdom. And yeah. we left it. We voted as a United Kingdom. And we are just being abandoned. And uh, it's ridiculous. The detail now in the Windsor framework, basically, the Prime Minister totally overplayed it. Yes. He, he, you know, he, he made it out that everything was wonderful. He even said, wonderful, you can take your pets now from Great Britain to Northern Ireland without any problem. Well, of course, we now know, reading the EU documents, that you have to still uh, get documentation and you still have to, you know, fill in forms and all of that. The, the bureaucracy hasn't changed. The, the trading relationship, they've set up this green line, green lane, 
but it's not a real green lane. Mm. Uh, you still are going to have to get loads of forms. I mean, I could go on for the whole program. Yeah, no, I know you can, and that's why I want to talk to you about it, because you're the expert. But are you surprised, as I am, with the sort of swiftness of how this has all happened? Because, you know, it was only a few months back that you, yourself and Ben Habib were involved in a legal action uh, that was before a court uh, where it was, you know, you were challenging the Northern Ireland Protocol and you were going to try and trigger Article 16 and all of that. And suddenly here we are where everybody seems to have just got very bored with it all and just gone, oh, just do that. And it feels like it's just a kind of, you know, make up mm. and mend kind of solution, which clearly yeah, isn't I, a solution. But somehow everybody's so fed up with it all that they've just gone along with it. Well, I think that's part of the problem. I mean, you know, every, the word Brexit almost people now sort of, you know, shake their heads. Not that they're necessarily annoyed at what, what happened, but they're just we've got rather fed up with it. Mm. And, and of course, I think the prime minister... Uh, behind the scenes, there were all these negotiations, technical negotiations going on. And, you know, I, I, last night in, in the Lords, uh, we had a few Conservative um, rebels um, who, who voted with uh, myself and, and the uh, DUP, but quite a few abstained and abstained deliberately. And they came up to me and said, look, you know, we know this is not right. We know this isn't going to work, but... You know, there's a general election coming. We want to show unity. Mm. And, you know, it's so terribly sad in politics when people, you know, I know you have a loyalty to your party, um, but ultimately, you know, principle has to matter sometimes. And, you know, the people who sort of went in to vote for something, that they, they know um, that history will actually judge them later on, yeah. that it was such a ridiculous thing. So I, I think, I'm afraid it's, it's, it's a very... It's not going to finish soon. We're going to still have to be talking about this. Um, they'll probably come up with some new idea, new name in a few months' time. But in the meantime, people in Northern Ireland are, 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 don't have devolution. Northern, uh, the Secretary of State is, is having to do various things. And quite honestly, there's an awful lot of people in Northern Ireland who don't wake up and say, oh, please, please, please let us have our yeah. storm. Well, quite. I mean, it seems to work quite well without government. I mean, at one point I was actually suggesting that maybe that's what we should do in London and just get rid of the government altogether and see how we get along, because, I mean, it may be actually more of an improvement. But the other problem, yes. of course, this week in Ireland, and we talk, I was talking to Ben Habib about this this week, is that they've now raised the threat level uh, of terrorism, which can only mean, presumably, that the IRA uh, are sort of ratcheting themselves up in some way, shape or form, which, of course, they said they wouldn't do if this deal was done. Yes, uh, I mean it is a it is a splinter group, but then of course that's what we've had over you know over basically the last hundred years. Yeah. One, one particular group of the IRA decides to go back and and, and, and give up being in theory um, being involved in violence. Another another one starts. So this is you know there's been the continuity IRA. Mm. There's you know there's been all sorts of different names. It's a very small group, I think. There's no doubt about that. And I think that obviously our intelligence services have been doing quite well in getting to grips with it but it's there mm. it's it's all and you know this is the problem with our government over the years because there's always been this threat particularly threats of, of bombing in great britain um the, the the governments have been have tended to sort of say well that we must placate the nationalists we must keep republicans happy so let's not even think about having some kind of cameras at the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Oh, no, no, that wouldn't do, you know, Varadka or, or actually threatened, uh, basically said that this was really dangerous. Um, so um, we'll do it to the unionist community because they're not going to bomb Great Britain. So we might as well just put the border down the Irish Sea and that will keep everybody happy. Right. Well, you know, there's a lot of people now in, in Northern Ireland who are saying, hang on, we 
we've given in far too much we've been the one that's had to had to had to accept all sorts of things you know let terrorists go out after you know being released and all this kind of thing so i i think that there is a threat but i don't think it's it's i think part of it also to be honest is because biden's coming it, it gives the opportunity for um, more police to be brought over from Great Britain, because that's what the police uh, commissioner has asked for mm. in Northern Ireland for the Biden visit. Um, and it just helps to um, sort of make it, you know, feel that they're doing more to actually keep everyone safe. Um, I don't think there's an immediate danger, but, you know, quite honestly, we just don't know because these small groups can do things very cleverly, mm. very quickly. Uh, even if they haven't got the capacity that the original IRA during the Troubles had. Yes, indeed. I mean, it does feel very much as though it's sort of, um, you know, the government's reaction to everything at the moment is just government by shop window politics, as I call it, where they're sort of saying they're doing stuff, but are they Major. really? Um, we're going to talk about the migrant situation coming up very right. shortly. Also, uh, pension implications today. Apparently, um, uh, there's a big announcement coming from Mel Stride, the Work and Pension Secretary, today, uh, which may suggest that your retirement age is going to go up. Now, you know what happened in France uh, when they suggested they might have to work beyond the age of 62. Uh, the whole place went up in flames. That won't be happening here. But it is, nevertheless, another move uh, in the wrong direction, as far as I'm concerned. 0344 499 1000. We're talking to Baroness Hoey. Uh, we'll be back with more from her uh, on pensions, on the migrants. And also, uh, we'll have a little bit of Lib Dem action for you as well. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Got a great uh, text here from Tony in Barra in Furness. Mike, he says, in the 1970s, there was a Genesis album called Selling England by the Pound. What these idiot MPs of the Lib Lab Con Trick Party can't sell, they are taxing out of business. This album should be renamed Destroying in England Through Taxes and Illegal Migration. They need to stop listening to special advisors straight from university with no life or work experience. A lot of people feel that way. We're talking to uh, Baroness Kate Hoey, uh, who's with us at the moment. But just before we carry on... Uh, Kate and talk about pension age uh, and retirement and all of that. Let's have a look uh, if we will uh, at the Lib Dems because uh, Ed Davey apparently still around. Sir Ed Davey is now uh, is head of the Lib Dems. Uh, this is their campaign slogan right uh, to uh, fight the local council elections. Have a look at this. So that was probably the worst edit I've ever seen of anything. Um, that was meant to be Ed Davey speaking uh, and then introducing the fact that they were going to drive a tractor uh, through a blue wall of haystacks, right? Unfortunately, the blue wall of haystacks actually stopped the tractor. I mean, if you have a look again, here it comes. They're always knocking things over the Lib Dems, which pretty much sounds uh, as though they're going to do something. But, of course, they're not going to do anything. Kate, I don't know what's wrong with the Lib Dems, but they, they, they seem to think that this is a great metaphor for something. But actually, it's not a very good metaphor because the blue wall has stopped them. It's also a bit of copycat, isn't it? He's, he's, he's trying to mimic what uh, Boris Johnson did. Do you remember during yes. the, uh, the election when he took the big um, tractor thing through the wall when to right. get it yeah. done? So um, you know, it, it's. <laughs> I think <clears throat> the Lib the Lib Dems have gone. You know, they've actually been almost irrelevant in the last um, couple of years. They really and have been. They've got no voice at all. I mean, even if they positioned themselves as much as we wouldn't particularly vote for them uh, as the pro sort of rejoiner party or something, it would at least be some mm. kind of policy. They don't seem to have any policy. No, and, and of course, they would argue that it's very difficult for them to get their message out when there's, you know, the two parties are, are so strong and, and there's so, been so much going on. But I think they... It's, 
in local elections, of course, the Lib Dems do tend to do quite well yes. because they they um, you know they have candidates who are probably more local community activists and independent types rather than necessarily you know libs uh, lib dem zealots um and therefore in council elections you know this is why you, you can't always take council elections as 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 um you know being able to show what's mm. going to happen nationally right. but uh, no I, I i there's a huge block i have to say of lib dems in the lords who are very active very full-time yes. in the law. Well, that's one of the problems, they were isn't it? all put in after the coalition government, you know, and nearly all of them came from local government. And it's their only sort of, you know, it seems to be almost their only um, involvement now is to be there full-time. Yeah. So well, we this, is, this is one of the problems with the House of Lords. You know, they've got way too many people in there for one thing, but they've also got way too many Lib Dems by proportion. They shouldn't have as many as they've got because they don't, you know, the, the, the proportion of people who vote Lib Dem in the country are overrepresented by a factor of about 10 in the House of Lords. Yes, and, uh, you know, it was what um, UKIP used to say and, and the Brexit Party too. I mean, really, in terms of the votes they got in overall, yeah. Um, there wasn't that kind of proportionality. I mean, Nigel Farage was never offered uh, a peerage. I'm not sure he would have taken it, but, uh, you know, he, I don't think he was offered it. He certainly uh, deserves really, one. When you think about it, he was as much entitled to it as, uh, yeah, of as anyone in the Lib Dems. Oh, absolutely right. Let's talk a little bit about um, this announcement today. Mel Stride, the Working Pensions Secretary, apparently is going to announce another, a further um, increase on the pensions age. As I was saying earlier, in France, they tried to move it from 62 to 64 and all hell broke loose. They're still burning buildings over there because they don't fancy it. Um, but we just keep saying, oh, nodding sagely and going, oh, OK, then I'll just work till I'm 75. Yeah, um, I think I'm, from what I understand, it's not going to be saying it is going up to 68 on such and such a date. It's going to talk again about the need for it to go up and how it would help the economy and how it would help overall um, people to know now that at some stage, definitely it will go up. Um, I, 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 you know, I do feel sorry. I mean, I'm obviously well past <laughs> retirement age, uh, and and it's interesting how more and more you, you you know you meet people who are past retiring age and still actually very very busy. So there's no doubt about it. People are, are living longer, and therefore you know th th there is a tendency for them to be able to work on. Um, but I mean, as long as you have that choice that you can still work on and you don't have to retire, I think for a lot of people who've worked very, very hard in, in particularly in, in manual jobs mm. and in jobs that are, are, are probably in many ways, you know, not as healthy as some of our jobs have yeah. been. Um, I think it is quite awful to suddenly discover that you're in that line where you're going to be the one, the area, the, the group that's going to have to uh, work on to get your state yes. pension that you paid for right throughout your life. Um, so it's never going to be easy. But, you know, you're absolutely right. It's just amazing what's happened in France, yeah. isn't it? That they, that they can go out. It's the same with the farmers. If anything happened, any, anybody does anything to the farmers in France, they're out with their tractors spreading manure all over the place. Yes, absolutely. We would, we would never do that. No, I mean, I think there is, an, uh, there is a, a problem currently with government in that it is very middle class and very sort of white collar. And I think they don't even really understand those kind of blue collar jobs that people have, which you have to retire from. You know, I mean, you and I are lucky enough to, to, to make a living by basically speaking. And as long as you yeah. can get up in the morning and you can speak, you're all right. You don't have to retire. But, you know, if you've got, as you say, a manual job that you can't really do anymore beyond a certain age, you should have the right to retire and be looked after because you have paid into the system uh, for as long as you have. 
Yes, and then of course we all all that group of, of of women in particular who missed out on 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 you know in that year when they they ended up having to go on extra. Um, it's 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 very it's a very difficult issue for governments. And usually people what people say very glibly is, oh well, you know, if we can just get cross party support, if we can get all the political parties to sign up to it, then it'll be much easier. Mm. But you you won't get that on something like the pension age. But I think today it'll be more about um, you know, it'll be more a sort of speech of of kind of almost waffle. Mm. Uh, and as you said earlier, right, there's you know, there's so many things now that politicians are saying uh, we're going to do or this would be a good idea. But actually, we know when it comes down to it that it will not happen yeah. not happen very quickly. Well, I mean, just look at what's been going on. I mean, they've obviously had somebody sitting in number 10 churning out policy documents saying, you know, uh, we might have an election soon, whether it's in the next year or the next year and a half. We better get back to proper conservative values. So what can we do? Oh, I know. Law and order. Let's lock up loads of people. Uh, let's say that we're going to keep people in prison for longer. Let's say that we're going to cut down on, on antisocial behaviour. Let's outlaw uh, the old laughing gas. Let's put the migrants back into uh, barracks instead of hotels. You know, it all sounds fine, but really nothing's changing, is it? No, and I mean, I don't know, you're probably going on later on to talk about the, the, the issue of the uh, barracks and so on. But, you know, that is only going to be useful for new people coming in. Mm. And, and that's, I mean, that's rather depressing, isn't it? Because that looks like we're actually quite um, sure that for, for the next, whenever, we're going to keep getting literally thousands of people yeah. coming every year yeah. and you know they can eventually they're going to have to go somewhere and where are they going to have to go if we're not going to deport them i mean my i'm i'm very very tough on this and it doesn't it doesn't make me uh, in any way a racist because mm. of course no I of mean, course not keep reminding people how many of these people that are coming in and single young men are from from countries that, uh, um, like albania where yeah. you know there's absolutely no reason for them to be fleeing and where they could come in other ways if they really want to come yeah. here. And it's particularly galling that as, as this government has actually increased the way that people can come legally now, you know, in terms of the jobs that they can now come yeah. to apply to get. So, um, and, you know, I think that particularly, I think it's at Scampton in Lincolnshire, the one that... Yeah, um, the Dambusters place, yeah. It, it is shocking. It's where the Dambusters mm. were. It's, it's where the Red Arrows... And, you know, for any small community, and again, I think it's the people who are running things in Whitehall, most of them, although even Rishi Sunak has a country seat, but they don't understand the, um, you know, a community in a, in a small village no. with not particularly that many people living around them. And suddenly to have, you know, a thousand young men coming into the area, I mean, who is, it, it, it's just preposterous to think that that's not going to cause social problems. Well, it is, of course, ridiculous to even assume, as we now are told that we're supposed to, that, oh, it won't make any difference, it's absolutely fine. I mean, if we've got 160,000 people waiting to be processed, I mean, just last weekend, the Sunday Times had their best place to live in Britain uh, uh, sort of survey done, mm. and they found that it was Wadhurst in East Sussex. 11,000 people live there, right? You're talking about 160,000 people coming here. You know, that is, you know, the equivalent of, of something like, what, 15 versions of Wadhurst. And you just go, well, how is that not likely to have an impact on the way everybody lives? And you see, again, I think that, you know, this has been announced that this is going to happen. But the reality is the local councils, I think already uh, one of the councils in Essex, I think Braintree Council, have taken legal action. There's going to be long, long uh, legal issues yes, on this. Definitely. And in six months' time, 
I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if not a single person has moved into any of these camps. Yes. And it's actually, you know, again, I want to ask, and we keep asking, what exactly are the French spending our money on? You know, what what have they done um, apart from perhaps put a few extra people along the sh- along the coast? But yeah. it really doesn't seem like all this extra money we've given to France to stop people coming from a safe country to us. Um, is 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 paying off in any way? Not at all. Well, I've rather jokingly said I think they've they've misunderstood the agreement. They think that for every pound we give them, they send us a migrant, um, <laughs> and that seems to be what's going on. But listen, Kate, great to see you. Got to run uh, because uh, we have run out of time, unfortunately. But Kate Hoey, uh, speaking an awful lot of sense as she always does, Baroness Hoey. Uh, if ever you want to abandon the House of Lords, think of Kate Hoey. Think of the job that she does. What I would do is kick out all the Lib Dems, or at least most of them, because uh, that would make a lot more sense. Coming. Up next, though, uh, we're going to talk about Net Zero because Harry Wilkinson is going to be joining us. He's head of policy at Net Zero Watch because today's the day uh, that we get another announcement from the government on their new energy policy. I presume what it is is just take everything you've got, stick it all in the garden and set fire to it and see how you get on. This is Talk TV. The app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, um, Grant Shapps was on TV this morning. He was talking to um, uh, Peter Cardwell on The Breakfast Show because today is the day, apparently, although I can't keep up with all these government announcements, apparently today is the day the government is unveiling its new energy policy. I've no idea what it is, so we've asked Harry Wilkinson to come in from Net Zero Watch to tell us what it is. But before we do that, uh, can we please have a look at what Grant Shapps had to say about why Net Zero is still a thing? Well, look, simply, the, 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 we all know the science is beyond any kind of doubt. We all know that we do need to sort out the world. It doesn't, doesn't, uh, is doesn't the science do us any favours our children, our grandchildren. Sorry, say again. Is the science beyond all doubt? It's absolutely a scientific consensus. You're 100% yeah. sure? Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think that argument's about a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 20-year-old argument. I think we do need to sort that out. But um, I agree with people. We shouldn't be going and sort of living a hair shirt world and going back to living in caves. I want people to be able to go out and, and enjoy themselves, live their lives, grow the economy. And this country's done brilliant at that. We've managed to cut our carbon emissions more than any other developed nation and grow our economy at the same time. Yes. Um, Grant Shapps there um, seems to be living in a world of his own. Uh, he says, happily, that he doesn't want us going back to living in caves. So that's probably quite a good thing. He also thinks the economy is growing, uh, which it isn't. Uh, and he also thinks that they've managed to cut their carbon output here in this country. I don't care about cutting carbon output. I once asked uh, Grant Shapps what we were doing it for. And he said to me, uh, Harry, do you not want to be the world leader in onshore wind? To which I said, not really. I don't really care. Um, and the point is that whenever these guys turn up and talk about, you know, the science is absolutely settled and it's about a 20-year-old argument that, um, they don't ever say this is what we've achieved by cutting back on our carbon. They don't tell us why it's any good. What, you know, what has, how has my life improved? How has life mm. got better for people? Because we've apparently cut down on CO2. That's right. Governments have spoken for many years about being world leaders in offshore wind. Mm. What's actually happened with that? We've seen, you know, that Britain hasn't generated many export opportunities from that. Uh, All we've done is waste a lot of uh, bill payers' money subsidising this technology, Mm. and it hasn't protected us during this energy And they keep saying the latest mantra from from government is that, oh, the good news is is that renewable energy is getting cheaper. Really? Well, try telling that to the people who are now paying £4,000 a year for their electricity bill. 
And, and, and what was really troubling was that the, the policy that was supposed to protect us from high prices, contracts for difference, yes. these were hailed as demonstrating that wind energy was really cheap. But what we saw is that these cheap contracts were only just due to come in last year mm. uh, at the peak of the crisis. But the companies that had been granted these contracts mm. actually said, no, <clears throat> we'll hold our hands up. We'll take market prices. Thank you very much. And so they took the higher prices uh, during that period. So although we were expecting, the government was expecting these companies to pay back a lot of that money, yes. uh, that didn't happen because these contracts were written uh, not very robustly. The civil servants didn't pay enough attention to the detail, and so the companies have taken bill payers for a ride. Yeah, and it seems to me we're being fed a whole load of what can only be described as garbage by some of the oil and gas companies who say, well, of course, you know, we are moving into more renewable energy sources. However, um, just because we make a bucket load of money in our company, we don't really make any money from you or from charging you four times what we used to charge you. Uh, so I'm afraid we can't reduce the size of your uh, energy bill uh, because these are the market prices, even though they're not. I mean, I wish somebody would just tell the truth in this whole saga. I want oil and gas companies just to be honest and upfront yeah. about what they do. Yes. They're there to produce oil and gas, which the global economy needs, and we need that to be as cheap as possible. Uh, but there is an argument to say, actually, the government is blocking many new sites going forward. Yeah. Across Europe, we've been turning up our noses at oil and gas, mm. um, and we've been introducing very high levels of taxation. So we can't be surprised you know, when we don't have the supplies during an energy crisis. So even though these companies have been making large amounts of money now, mm. there's a whole upstream industry uh, which is operating on much tighter margins. And unless we have the right tax environment, you know, we simply won't have the supplies there. No. And the, the announcements today are really concerning. because yeah. Well, do tell us what they are going to be, because I'm, I'm puzzled as to what our energy policy actually is. So a key one that was announced today was the transferal of, of green energy levies from electricity bills yeah. to gas bills. Now, this isn't supposed to l change the overall bill. It's just moving the costs around. Right. However, I think in reality, it makes heating relatively more expensive. And when people are really struggling, you know, one thing they're balancing is staying warm oh, or eating. Right. And so if we're, if we're making it harder for people to stay warm, because most people still have gas boilers, you know, we're putting the vulnerable people in, a, in an even worse situation. Yeah. So, so to be doing this at the end, at, uh, during an energy crisis seems a very tin Well, approach. whenever I talk to people just about their general situation, people are saying that they're basically paying four times now what they used to pay for their electricity and or gas, whatever it is they use at home. And many of them just can't afford it and they don't know what to do. And I don't, now that, now that this subsidy, which I was never in favour of really in the first place, is going to stop, you know, the sort of £66 a month or whatever it was they were giving out. Um, people are at the end of their tether, they're kind of going, well, what are we supposed to do? If we haven't got the money, we can't pay the bill. Inflation is really the key economic issue that we're grappling oh. with at the moment. And that translates into pain for people who can't afford what they want to do. Uh, and, and this strategy doesn't deal with that. We, we also saw a carbon border tax being mooted. Um, and all that would do would be to raise the price of basic commodities like steel and cement, fundamental for the economy, yeah. and, and those would, would become more expensive as well. So, you know, this isn't a government that's looking at the, some of the issues no. that the country and, and when people look at food prices going up, I was talking to Lance Forwin yesterday, he runs a, a smoked salmon business, his, his electricity bill went from £200,000 a year to £400,000 a year, and he's like, we have to put prices up. 
You know, that's mm. a massive amount of money to have to find to fund a business, and that's just mm. the electricity bill. It's absolute madness. And also, what we never get from them is, again, as I said about Grant Shapps there, talking about the signs being settled, you know, exactly how has the earth improved, you know, over the, say, past, I don't know, five years since we've supposedly been mm. cutting back on carbon? What's going on? You know, how's it got better? I've also, looked, I also was told yesterday that in Germany they voted down uh, their um, proposed net zero kind of policies. And they're saying, no, we can't do it now because we're in too much stuck, frankly. Mm. Well, I, I think it was interesting to see uh, Grant Shapps there say the science is settled. And, and I would agree climate change is, is real. It's happening. It, it's man-made to some extent. Um, but, but we don't but really what, know that. Though. What, what that debate does is, is to distract people from the issues. Yeah. Because rather than our serious questions about these policies, we, we get sidetracked. Right. And I mean, climate change does have an impact, but it's modest. And we can see that economic development has lifted so many people out of poverty. We can look forward with confidence to actually being less vulnerable mm. to extreme weather it, uh, in the future. And yeah. that's what all the evidence shows. But, but, so but to even ignore more, that... But even more importantly, never mind what's been happening and what has occurred, what about mm. what we're doing and how that affects it? What we don't have is any science which will mm. prove that because we are no longer going to be driving petrol and diesel cars by 2030, that somehow the earth will last longer. Well, politicians need fear mm. to be able to convince people that these policies are justified. And that phase-out of... Uh, petrol and diesel vehicles was one of the policies that uh, Grant Shapps doubled down on yeah. today. And that's really worrying because we've seen even in the EU, they've got worried they've about this. Away from the it, Germans, they? the Italians, various other European countries uh, didn't like this and they complained and therefore they've watered down this ban right. um, to allow for synthetic fuels to power cars of the future. The UK government has its head in the sands. No one thinks that the, the, the phase-out will be achievable yeah. by 2030, which is when they want yeah. it to happen. So they're, they're steamrolling the country to a policy that will you know, take driving out of um, the reach of millions. Yeah. People won't be able to afford to drive anymore. Um, and so we really want to see the government And there are these kind of nutcases around who think that's a good thing. Oh, we don't want to drive. You know, we're going to be talking later on about um, a car park in Canberra Sands, which is going to be charging mm. £30 a day. People were actually on social media saying, well, why do you need to drive to the beach? Well, because you've got children, dogs, you know, kayaks. What are you supposed mm. to do? Get on a bike, put a kayak on your back, carry your dog, put two kids on either knee as you cycle down to the car park. I mean, ridiculous. People do become extremists on this. They yeah. focus on some of the negatives. There are negatives to driving as well. Happy to accept that. But look at the look at the advantages. Look at the liberation that it allows people to see their family, to go on holiday, yeah. to get to work. An awful lot of women would be you know, probably feeling very unsafe mm. if they didn't have a car to drive Disabled around. Disabled people don't yeah. necessarily have the access Older to Older people services. who can't cycle anywhere or walk anywhere, you know. I mean, it's such a ridiculously middle-class ludicrous kind of um, champagne mm. socialist view of the world. Oh, well, we live in London, so you don't need a car because you can just get on the tube. And when we're subsidising electric cars or heat pumps, what we're doing is taking money from the general public and giving it to the wealthiest people who can afford those technologies. This is the, this is the opposite of what the tax system was meant to do. It was supposed to support the most vulnerable and the poorest people. The government's now switched that round that they're giving large amounts of money to buy technologies that people wouldn't buy otherwise. You know, ultimately, a green transition would be quicker if companies were able to come up with products that people would buy without compulsion, uh, rather than being bribed by the government 
um, who may waste billions and billions backing technologies that ultimately prove not to be successful. Yeah, it's all very depressing. But we'll be talking some more about this, I'm sure, throughout the course of the show and also throughout the course of this month as we approach April, um, because hopefully the weather will warm up a bit. You won't be perhaps putting the heating on as much as you were. You won't perhaps get as much of a bill for it uh, as you were getting. Um, but this government's idea that net zero is a target worth getting to is a nonsense, it seems to me. Uh, Harry, thank you very much indeed. Harry Wilkinson, Head of Policy at Net Zero Watch. Very sensible man. Uh, we'll have him back very soon. Uh, we will talk some more to you guys. We'll take your calls. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. Also coming up, is the countryside racist? <laughs> no, of course it isn't. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's a big day today. Thursday, of course, is the Thursday Club. Helena Nicklin will be here. Uh, she's going to be looking ahead to Easter, which is not that far away. It's only, I think, about a week or so from now, isn't it? The end of next week, I think, is Easter weekend. Uh, so that's all terribly exciting. King Charles is in Germany. Uh, he's about to become, I believe, the first member of the British royal family to actually speak to members of Germany's lower house of parliament, the Bundestag, uh, which, of course, is in Berlin. Uh, we'll be going over to that in a little while because apparently he might be mentioning Brexit. He might be mentioning net zero. He might be mentioning a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to speak to Craig McKinley MP, of course, as well, uh, who is ERG member and chair of the net zero scrutiny group. Uh, this is after we heard from Grant Shapps this morning, who basically told us that, you know, it's an old argument to say that the, the science is not clear uh, on net zero. The science is not clear uh, on climate change. I think the problem with every single conversation we have about climate change is that the people who think that they know everything and who are absolutely certain that net zero is the right way to go and that net zero is the place to end up and that net zero is the virtuous thing to do. All of those arguments are all very well, but what they are not is based on any scientific evidence. Because at the end of the day, uh, what we do know uh, is that if the climate is changing, why is it changing? We might say that it is changing. We might say that it's our fault that it's changing. But what we don't say and what we can't say is whether or not anything that we do will have any effect whatsoever on the outcomes of our futures. Because what we do know is that if Britain goes to net zero by 2050 or 2040 or 2044 and a half, it won't make any difference to the rest of the world because the rest of the world not doing it uh, will over overcome the British people doing whatever they do. But let's talk to Craig McKinley right now and find out what he makes of it all. Craig, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Morning. Nice to talk to you. It's a very difficult kind of, I mean, it shouldn't be difficult, but it seems to be a very difficult thing to get any brains and sense out of. You know, we hear from Grant Shapps this morning. Peter Cardwell says to him, you know, is the science absolutely right on this? And he says, well, of course it is. And in fact, it's a 10 or maybe a 15 or maybe a 20 year old argument to say that it's not. But the trouble is, you know, there's so many different arguments going on here. You know, you might agree that climate change is happening. You might even say that it's Britain's fault that it's happening or that it's the world's fault or it's people's fault that it's happening. But what nobody can tell me is what happens if we do get to net zero and what will be the benefit of that? Because nobody knows. Well, I, I know there's lots of uh, no benefits from going to net zero and it's cost and aggravation and change to the way that we live. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to go into the sort of science of whether it's human produced climate change, all the rest of it. I'm very happy to accept that uh, the world chucking out 45 billion tonnes of CO2 a year cannot be doing a great deal of good. So if there is a better way, then, well, that, that's fine. That, we'll have to sort of look at that. But if it doesn't give us energy security, if it doesn't give us uh, a price per kilowatt hour of energy to power our homes, 
uh, and our industries, while the rest of the world, notably China, uh, is saying, well, yeah, thanks very much, but yeah, boo to that. Yeah. I can't see that our 1%, uh, which I think is a mere rounding error, uh, if we got to net zero while much of the world is, is still finding its feet and finding a nice lot of coal reserves in China and India and Indonesia, mm. all the rest of it, I cannot see why we would want to completely deindustrialize, move just about every uh, high energy business abroad. And we're already seeing that uh, as, as we speak on a regular basis. Um, we won't be making steel, aluminium, uh, pottery, all the rest of it. Anything that's high, high energy will simply go abroad. But I'm more interested, Mike, in the practicalities. Um, now, a third of the energy used in the UK is electricity. 50% of that electricity comes from gas. 15% and diminishing at the moment because we're closing down our nuclear power stations way before new ones are getting uh, put online. Uh, so about 15%, 35% from a mixture of renewables, which includes the nonsense, I'm afraid to say, of things like um, cutting down wood in North America, pelletizing it, transporting it across the Atlantic by a diesel ship, sticking it into a, a repurposed coal power station in the UK, and then calling it green. <laughs> I mean, these are the nonsensical arguments. So a third of our energy is electricity. So even if we could get to 100% renewable types in a mixture of, of nuclear and renewables, solar and wind, uh, you've then got to store it because of those days. And it's interesting you said about the king being in Germany. There is a fantastic German word, and it's called Dunkelflauter. Oh, yes. One of my favourites. What do you do when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? It means you need to store a lot of electricity. And there are times that we could have a week of that type of weather. Very cold, very still, not a lot of uh, sun and no wind at all. You've got to store this. Now, the only storage mechanisms you have are pumping it uphill, water uphill, so you've got a, a hydro system, or going up a battery route. Or, you know, there are other things you could, you could electrolyze to make hydrogen and all the rest of it. But these are hugely, hugely expensive. But we're not just talking about trying to replace... They're also not that safe. I mean, I was listening to an expert on batteries the other day who actually said it's all very well for a battery in your phone uh, to get overheated when sometimes you use the phone for a bit too long. The bigger the battery is, the more dangerous it becomes. And you've seen many uh, episodes of, of these scooters spontaneously combusted uh, and also electric cars. So, I mean, you know, it's not the world's safest technology. At this point. Well, no, and, and, and where do you get these rare metals that go into these huge yeah. battery packs? I mean, there have been some truly dreadful fires on the back of these. I think there was one in Australia not too long ago. You can't put the thing out. It kicks off uh, a load of noxious fumes. But where do you get all these rare metals? They come from Africa, dug out the ground by children a lot of the time, yeah. under conditions of unspeakable human condition. But, of course, uh, all of us say, oh, isn't it all wonderful that we're all green and, uh, and all the rest of it? But that's not where it ends, Mike. We, if we're going to go full electrification, we've got to have three times as much energy uh, to you know, get the electricity for our cars and power our homes and all the rest of it. So you've got to have three times as much electricity as we currently have, of which we have a great shortage. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got to store even more than that, probably have capacity for two or three times as much energy for the days when the wind doesn't blow. I mean, I'm looking at this through practical terms. It is impractical. And all the while we're importing LNG gas from around the world because gas is going to be part of our mix for a very, very long time. And we're ignoring the potential 
under our feet. I mean, I've been proposing uh, the use of, of fracking, fracked gas, yeah. and thank heavens the US has done well, that. Well, there's another, there's another ridiculous situation, right? We're, we're not fracking our own gas, but we're able to go to America and buy some of their fracked gas and ship it over here in a very, very big ship which is powered by diesel. Exactly. I mean, all of that gas could be produced here with the investment that comes with it, the jobs that come with it, the tax revenues that come off the back of it. Uh, and wouldn't it be nice to have a bit of a balance of payments uh, uh, help as well, rather than importing yes. it from abroad? But that's so the other the whole, thing. Craig, the, 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 other, is crackpot, right? yeah, the other thing about um, the business of energy in this country is that we keep being told by everybody who is in favour of net zero, oh, the great thing about renewables is they're getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Well, really? Tell that to the people who are being uh, forced to pay four times what they used to pay for their energy bills at home. Well, there's been, a, I, I have to say, a complete con in the, uh, the cost of renewable market. Uh, I've looked at the actual accounts of many of these uh, wind renewable companies, and they are not earning much money because the, you know, the much vaunted about £75 per megawatt hour is not the real cost. They need support. They need mechanisms. They need adjustments. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ...and levies and all the rest of it to make this thing work. And that is uh, on the basis that they can sell when the wind blows yeah. at a fixed price. It has not factored in the cost of storage. And that is where the, the you know, unimaginable costs then come into play. I mean, I'm all in favor of nuclear, very much so. We are way, way behind the curve on nuclear. Uh, and I say that went wrong in 1997 with the Labour manifesto that said we see no new economic case for new nuclear. Mm. I mean, if we'd have got ourselves on track with nuclear a long time ago, uh, we'd be in a different place. But, uh, yeah, we can always say that date was the best date to do it. The second best date is today. So, yeah, very much in favour of, of nuclear. That does give your energy security and, and all of those good things. 
Uh, but this, this dash to renewables, I'm afraid, just doesn't cut it because of the cost of storage. And yeah. Nobody's talking about that at the moment. No. I, mean, I would rather we, we use the gas we have. Uh, you know, be sensible about insulation. Be sensible about these things. Very happy with all that. And can you believe, Mike, that the, the national planning policy framework, you know, we've been building about 250,000 new homes a year. There is not a standard that these homes need to be built to net zero. I'd be more than comfortable. Yeah. Well, uh, this is the thing. That's the best time to do it. That's the best time to do it. But the solar panels, when they're being built, and a heat pump, if you want one, when they're being built. But this retrofitting, I'm afraid, simply doesn't work. No. Well, everyone I know that's got a heat pump says they're useless, basically. They don't work. They don't heat the house. They don't heat the water. Uh, and frankly, they wish they'd never put them in. But that's another story altogether. But what's interesting to me uh, on this, Craig, is that the government appears to be attempting to look like it's a bit more conservative lately. Uh, you know, they've announced all sorts of measures on antisocial behaviour. Uh, they're talking about doing something about the migrants, which we'll get onto in a second. You know, they're basically trying to, to, to say that people should go to prison for longer. Maybe ministers should be able to block people being released. You know, it all sounds very good. It all sounds very conservative, uh, which which the Conservative Party seems to have lost its way on slightly. You know, when is it going to hit the energy uh, markets? When are they going to realise that actually this net zero is not a very conservative way to go either? Well, I think that will become very apparent as the uh, the stubborn high price of energy because of this, uh, this policies we've had on, on renewables and all the rest of it uh, really comes home to roost. I mean, I cannot see if we go up this route that we will be back to those lower fuel and, and energy costs of, of heating our home ever again. And most electors sort of vote with their pockets. They really do. I mean, if they're feeling good, if they've got money in their pocket, if life is reasonable, they tend to sort of stick with the uh, the party that has provided that. And I'm sorry to say, this is this is simply going to unwind, I think, under the weight of its, all, of its own uh, nonsense, frankly. And then we'll be looking wistfully abroad at... Uh, all of that uh, industry going on on uh, as our jobs are being exported to China, India and elsewhere, uh, doing it on the back of, of cheap energy uh, and wondering why we got these huge costs and these grave concerns about our energy bills. I mean, the madness of this, Mike, I mean, if you aren't really mad, you've got most solar panels are being uh, put together in China. Right. Um, lots of rare metals going into these uh, the, these arrays. Uh, that's being dug out the ground in a lot of Chinese controlled mines across Africa and elsewhere in in conditions of misery. And they're building these on the back of cheap coal energy. Of course they and are. Then, and then we tap ourselves on the back and say, oh, look at me. I've got a, you know, a whizzy new solar array on the roof. I mean, this is greenwash nonsense. I want some common sense. I want some good pricing, right. and uh, I, I think we need to... Also, if you're buying a solar panel from China, it's probably just going to turn into the world's biggest listening device that you've just employed somebody to put into install in your roof. But stay where you are, Craig. We're going to take a little trip over to the Bundestag, uh, where King Charles is speaking. Uh, he could be speaking in German or English. Let's see what he's up to. came when our continent was still deeply scarred by war and the trauma of conflict. Hers was the wartime generation, and like my father, the Queen had served in uniform. That my parents' 11-day tour of Germany should prove to be a pivotal moment in the reconciliation between our nations was therefore a matter of great personal significance to them both. Meine Mutter wusste Welch enorme Errungenschaft diese Versöhnung bedeutete. 
und mit ihren vielen Besuchen in Deutschland wollte sie ihren Beitrag dazu leisten. Vielleicht ist das der Grund, warum sie sich einen besonderen Platz in Herzen der Deutschen eroberte. King Charles there speaking in German. It's slightly unnerving, that seems to me. Anyway, let's go back to Craig McKinley. Craig, um, who knew uh, that uh, for the first time ever we've got a king of this uh, great nation of ours addressing the German parliament, hands across the water and all that? No, I, I think it's very good news. Uh, I'm very pleased that the king is there. Uh, I'm afraid my O-level German wasn't quite up to remember it. All, I heard, all I heard was Grunderschaft. That's all I heard. Yeah. But no, I, I think the relationship with Germany can be a very positive one. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's all to the good. Uh, I'm very pleased that he's there and being very, very well received. I yes. think it's a good credit to the country. And uh, long may it continue. Well, it also uh, shows you, doesn't it, through all those naysayers who go banging on about the royal family and how pointless they all are. Uh, actually, that's not true. That lots of people around the world really, really revere our royal family and see our royal family as a massive positive thing for this country. Well, it is a massive extension of the soft power of the United Kingdom. You know, we may not be a, a global superpower anymore. Uh, we may not have, um, you know, the, we're in, in the high league of, of having a an active and, and very effective military, but our soft power is still in that superpower league. There are in a few other, I mean, he's not a politician, he is the, the head of our state, but the way that uh, the royalty can access anywhere and speak to anyone and influence is really a powerful force. I've always been in favour of monarchy. When you look around the world, it, it tends to be uh, countries that still maintain a monarchy that have had the longest spell of unbroken um, you know, stability and common sense. Yeah. Long may that continue. Indeed. And I have uh, to say, I, um, talking of stability and common sense, our good mate uh, Sir Keir Starmer has made another blunder. He decided to speak at exactly the same time as uh, King Charles, and so, of course, nobody's listening to him. <laughs> yes, I can imagine the viewing figures are rather different. Yes, I imagine so. Uh, just before I let you go, let's talk briefly about the migrants and the latest uh, uh, announcement from the government that they're going to set up some migrant camps effectively. Uh, one of them in Bexhill uh, in uh, East Sussex, um, which is run by Rother Council. This is the same council that have basically cut off all recycling that they used to do uh, and have now decided to start charging £30 a day to park at Camber Sands. Right, well... Um... Yeah, it's an old prison camp. It was a, a prison between uh, 1960 and 1992. Uh, it will doubtless cause a lot of local concern. But what do we do? What do we do with uh, the numbers that have been coming in? Uh, at the peak of last year, we were having 3,000 a month coming in. Yeah. Uh, my worry is that even if you do find a lot of old uh, prisons or military facilities, MOD facilities around the country, I mean, there's one proposed in, in Essex, another one up in um, Yorkshire. Uh, this is you know, nowhere near the numbers that you need to actually accommodate uh, people coming in. What we need to do is stop the people coming in. It's not, not difficult, and obviously that is the, uh, the background to the illegal migration bill that's making its way through Parliament. Uh, I hope it's going to be effective. It's politically very important that it's effective. But I will plea once again, Mike, I think I've done it to you before. Mm. Uh, if you could make a call to President Macron and make sure that the beach launchings are stopped, we wouldn't need any of this. We wouldn't need new legislation that is getting uh, certain types rather upset about uh, uh, you know, talking about the ECHR and whether it should have its full remit that it currently does. We wouldn't need to be talking about hotels being stood up around the country, which you know causes grave concern to local populations. 
Uh, and if this continues at these numbers, uh, there'll be one coming to practically every town uh, near you. And if you want to go on holiday somewhere, well, hard luck. It'll be full with uh, with migrants. Yeah, I think that is a basic problem. But I think continue. in fairness as well, I mean, you can't rely on the French for much, to be to be honest. Um, then we need to make it less hospitable for them. Because even the French say the reason they all come here is because they know they'll get a nicer time than if they stay in France. Simple. Oh, oh no, we've done a lot uh, badly wrong for ourselves. Not one, not least one is the very long processing um, system. It could be a year, it could be more, 18 months, two years. And to be put in a hotel of a reasonable quality uh, for that length of time, yeah, that's, there's nothing about that not to like. Uh, there is the potential for underground working, and I think HMRC and others have taken their, their eye off the ball for some time. Still hangovers from that COVID period where not a lot happened. Uh, and uh, yeah, there is the ability in this country to do underground working, and I think that's quite unique as well. Uh, and of course, we've got English language and all those other pull factors, but we need to stop the pull factors that we can stop. And those pull factors, that's the reason for this policy of, of putting people in you know, less desirable accommodation is trying to suppress one of those pull factors. But I think there's a lot more we can we can do in terms of getting people through the system rather more quickly. I, I think I mentioned it to you before, Mike. You know, how is it that we we're all under the same UN 1951 convention, the whole of Europe, uh, we're all under the same ECHR, and yet our yes uh, through the process is 76%. The EU average is 16%. Yeah. Is there something going wrong in our judiciary? Well, there is. Obviously. Absolutely right. But listen, we've got to run. Uh, Craig, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Craig McKinley, MP there uh, on the migrant problem that we've got. Uh, we're not making it any better. We're actually making it worse. You know, what you don't do uh, when you keep getting people breaking into your house uh, is to let them come in and then buy another house for them to break into and live. Sorry, that doesn't seem to me to be a solution, does it? 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk you, Les, coming up. Uh, more green madness. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. A bit of a busy hour here. We're expecting to hear from Mel Stride, the Working Pensions Secretary, uh, coming up a little bit later on in this hour. Uh, he's supposed to be going to be revealing uh, what's going to happen to the pension age, whether it's going to go up, whether it's going to stay where it is. Uh, I don't think it's going to go down, uh, that's for sure. But we've been talking all this week about uh, anti-motoring kind of um, laws that are being brought in, bylaws, you know, no, low traffic neighbourhoods, uh, speed cameras being brought in. Uh, we've also heard from Sadiq Khan of course, the uh, mayor of London uh, on the fact that he thinks that anybody who's opposing his expansion of the ULEZ is a sort of nutty right wing crank. Uh, we're going to speak now to Nick Rogers, who's an assembly member for uh, the Conservatives, of course, and he's also their transport spokesman. Uh, Nick, a very good morning to you. Hello, Mike. How are you? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm good. I mean, we've been talking this week about all manner of different things that have happened, not just in London, but outside in Oxford, uh, also in, um, I think it was um, up north in Rochdale, uh, where somebody set fire to one of these um, uh, blockages that was put in the roads. I mean, the, the whole country seems to be under siege at the moment from people who don't want anyone to drive a car. Well, absolutely. And um, ULEZ expansion is one of the worst of all of these policies, simply because it will affect so many thousands upon thousands of, of people. Yeah. I mean, as you can imagine, my inbox has been full of residents, businesses, uh, charities who uh, who face 
um, from from the mayor's policy. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I think 700,000 is the approximate number of people who are likely to be affected just in London alone. But we've seen, as I say, uh, earlier this, this week, um, footage of a woman trying to drive through a roadblock which looked like it was just set up by local residents rather than actual council people. It didn't look like an official roadblock at all. So there is this kind of creeping sense that, that there are two tribes effectively in this country, those who need to drive to, to go to work or to take their kids to school or to do whatever it is that they do, and those kind of NIMBY types who say, oh, no, you can't drive down my street because you're going to pollute the air. The air. Yes, I, and, and I, there's no, no wonder that there's a growing backlash, as there is obviously against ULS expansion. There's an enormous amount of backlash, and especially in London, people aren't uh, driving for fun. Um, and unless you're, uh, I don't know, Jeremy Clarkson, you don't describe yourself as a motorist as such. You're just someone who drives because they have to for work, to care for their family, to pick up the kids, whatever it might be. And the, the simple fact of geography in a lot of uh, parts of outer London means that people just simply have to drive. There's no reasonable alternatives to driving for a lot of people to, just to live their daily lives. Right. That is the problem, isn't it? And you've taken exception as well as many people have to the way that Sadiq Khan uh, has been talking about all of this. You know, he's not a man that likes to be criticised. He's not a guy that likes to come on this show. He's been asked many times if he would do it. Uh, his people don't even respond to us anymore. Uh, he likes to go on other places uh, where he gets given a soft ride. But when he was out in Ealing, the other week and, and basically likening op opposition to, to his plans. Uh, the, 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 the people who were opposed to it were sort of right wing cranks, racists, COVID deniers, you know, climate change deniers. I mean, he's lost the plot, hasn't he? I mean, I would love to see him on your show, Mike. I think it would be so would I. hilarious. And uh, let's see if we can make that happen. But um, uh, I, I was astonished, absolutely astonished. Uh, people, it was at People's Question Time at, uh, at Ealing, uh, four weeks ago, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, he said that, and I quote, if you're opposed to ULES, you are in coalition with the far right. And these are what he's talking about. My constituents, the people, the residents, the businesses, the charities that I spoke about earlier. Those are the people who he's saying are in coalition uh, with the far right. It's absolutely uh, disgraceful and it's designed to uh, deflect criticism from him. Um, but ultimately, it's a smear mm -hmm. against thousands of of. You know, ordinary Londoners who have very, very valid reasons for opposing his policy. Yes, absolutely right. And you've written an open letter uh, to the mayor. Have you had any response from him yet? Well, I've, I've written to um, Keir Starmer and all of the Labour MPs and council leaders within the expanded ULES, um, just asking him, uh, asking them to uh, to condemn the mayor. Uh, and of course, two weeks on from that letter, uh, I guess you won't be too surprised. I haven't had a single response, which is disgraceful because it's not just my constituents, it's their constituents as well, who are being smeared by yeah. the mayor. Well, exactly right. I mean, this is the trouble with the Labour Party, though, isn't it? You know, they won't ever allow anyone to criticise one of their own. I mean, when they were having a debate about the Metropolitan Police and the Casey report, and Starmer was busy going on and on and on about how it was the Tories' fault, and when somebody pointed out to him, well, actually, Sadiq Khan's in charge of the Metropolitan Police, uh, he went a bit quiet. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, on ULES, you've had actually four Labour MPs have come out with some criticisms of... Uh, of the uh, of the plan, which I think in the context of what you're talking about, of Labour being a very sort of uh, tight knit circle the wagons kind of organisation, yeah. that speaks volumes about just how much opposition they must be getting from their residents on this. Yeah, absolutely right. And also, what are you hearing about the general? I mean, we've got today, for example, we've got the Conservatives 
talking about net zero. We've got Grant Shapps, who was on The Breakfast Show this morning, uh, banging on about how, you know, this is something we must do. You know, if we don't do it, you know, we're all going to die. It's kind of rather hysterical. And it's kind of disappointing, I think, for a lot of people to see how much it's costing us to go down this net zero route. And I know that, you know, Conservative Party policy appears to be be, be officially in favour of net zero. But when it's becoming so dangerous and harmful to the general public and to the general economic wealth of the country and of the individuals in this country, surely somebody can put a break on it, can't they? I think with all these with all these policies, the important thing is that we take people with us. Yeah. Um, and ULES expansion is a classic example of a policy that where people are not being taken uh, along on the journey. Yeah. They are they feel like it's being done to them rather than with them. Um, and uh, I think we'll probably look back on the mayor's ULES expansion as an example of how not to do uh, policy making. Yes, I think that's right. But I mean, given that you're in the Tory party, I, I, I would beseech you, Nick, if you can, uh, on my behalf to say to them, look, can you just calm your jets a bit on this? Because people are suffering, you know, their, their energy bills are going through the roof. And what they don't need to hear is people like Grant Shapp saying, oh, the great thing is the renewable energy is getting a lot cheaper. Well, if it got cheaper, I think people would be very happy to have it. But it doesn't look that way. Absolutely. Well, I'll definitely take that back, Mike. Very kind. Thank you very much indeed. Nick Rogers uh, from the Conservative Group uh, in the Greater London Assembly. Transport spokesman, of course. The trouble with Sadiq Khan, right, uh, is that he's not very confident. He goes around thinking uh, that he's confident, but he won't go anywhere where he doesn't actually like the people who are going to meet him to talk to him. He doesn't like actually talking to the general public. He doesn't like going anywhere where he's not going to be welcomed. He certainly won't come into this studio. We've asked him a myriad of times. I think we probably, in the dozens of times we've asked him uh, to come in, and he never does. I mean, we'd be very happy to host him here. We've got plenty of questions for him. But uh, sadly, uh, Sadiq just doesn't have the bottle. It's as simple as that. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have sashayed, no less, into the afternoon. It's now uh, five minutes past midday. We should be hearing at some point in this hour from Mel Stride, the Work and Pension Secretary. Uh, we hear uh, that he's about to uh, either raise the age at which people will retire and get their pensions or freeze it and say, actually, we're not going to raise it at all. Uh, but we can do that at some point whenever he is uh, up and speaking in the House of Commons um, sometime after uh, this uh, quarter past an hour perhaps we shall see we've been talking about the countryside uh, is it racist is it not racist we'll also be talking about the lib dems because i think we've finally fixed uh, the lib dem uh, plan to fix the country there is going to be local elections coming up of course in may and the lib dems did announce their policies uh, just yesterday let's have a look shall we uh, we, keep, uh, we keep doing these photo ops because we keep beating the Conservatives. And that's why I would say to people, uh, in many parts of the country, Liberal Democrats are the main opposition to the Conservatives. And if you want to see them uh, thrown out of your council, if you want to build and send a message ahead of the general election, vote Liberal Democrat. Where's the tractor? I mean, is there anybody around here that knows what they're doing? So first we had the tractor with no sound. Then we have Ed Davey talking, but no tractor. Maybe we'll try again. Third time lucky. How about this from Polly Toons on Twitter? £437,000 golden handshake settlement for the ex-leader of Labour-run Croydon Council. Who bankrupted it? (laughs) 
Well done. Local politics at their absolute best. Very good. Uh, anyway, let's talk now instead to Ian Mansfield, Director of Research at Policy Exchange. The front page of the Times this morning, Parents Kept in the Dark Over Gender, a fascinating um, report published uh, today by Policy Exchange, in which it says that basically schools in this country are routinely allowing children to switch genders, not telling their parents in what they call a mass breach of safeguarding. This is an extraordinary story. Um, we hear now, I think, that something like 25% of children in secondary schools in this country uh, consider themselves to be non-binary. Let's find out what's going on. Ian, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. Thank you very much indeed. This is a very worthy um, uh, report from Policy Exchange um, and an extraordinary one, I think, for an awful lot of parents who will be saying, how is it possible that I'm sending my child to school where they're supposed to be learning about all manner of things from history to English to maths to prepare for GCSEs and A-levels and all of that. But instead, what they're finding is that an awful lot of them are being encouraged to consider changing their gender at, at worst. Absolutely. I think what this report has done is for the first time it's exposed the scale of these problems in our schools. And what we are seeing is that there are well-established principles around safeguarding, which are being disregarded when it comes to dealing with questions mm. of gender. Um, some, of the, some of the key things we found out, we, we wrote freedom of information requests to over 300 schools, and we found out that 28% of schools were not reliably informing parents if their child um, experienced gender distress. And we found schools doing things like promising confidentiality to a child, yeah. which you never do in a safeguarding case. We found that one in four schools were teaching that children that they may be born in the wrong bodies. And we found that four in 10 schools are operating a process of self-ID, mm. despite the government actually rejecting that in law. Um, schools seem to be very, very confused about this issue. And what they're doing is not compatible with their safeguarding duties. Isn't it strange that, that, that we have come to this to this point? Because generally speaking, if uh, my son gets a detention, I get an email from the school immediately to say that he's got a detention. Um, but if, for example, he was to say, uh, I'm thinking I might be born in the wrong body, presumably they wouldn't send me an email. Well, it depends on the school. Some, I mean, some schools are acting appropriately, but I think it's a very good thing you said. I mean, you, know, you need to sign a permission slip for your child to be given, you know, paracetamol, yeah. for example, usually in schools. But you may find that in some schools, your child could have reported gender distress, have socially transitioned and be being called by a different name right. without the parent being informed. Right. And how can that be right? Yeah, it does seem very strange. I mean, it's certainly true to say that a lot of younger people have a different view of this. You know, I've got two teenage sons currently in school. One of them uh, sort of goes along with it to some extent and has admitted that he's been taught the whole 72 genders thing. Um, another one is a little bit less uh, likely to, to believe all that. But certainly um, there's, there's something going on. And I wonder what it is. I mean, what do you think is causing schools to, 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 to go so far down this particular road? So I think a lot of teachers and head teachers are, are confused, they're worried, they're, they think they're trying to do the right thing, they're trying to be kind, um, and what they've lost sight of, if they've lost sight of some of these core safeguarding principles about involving parents, about not promising confidentiality to a child, about 
following the evidence about a whole school safeguarding approach. I mean, we had, you know, we had recently the CAS report into some of what was going on at the gender identity clinic in Tavistock, which mm. found some really grievous failings there right. at that gender identity clinic. And what seems like happening is that in, in far too many schools, we're, we're going down that same path of ignoring the principles that we know best to look after children in pursuit of this, this very contested, this very radical um, ideology. Yes, because we've got, uh, from your report, 40% of schools operating policies of gender self-identification and 69% of schools requiring other children to affirm the pupil's new identity. And I've heard stories like that from people that have called into this show, um, you know, mm. where some of their children have got into trouble because they've refused to recognise somebody else in the class uh, as having um, changed their gender. I think it becomes even more serious then when you look at how you know we've got around one in five, one in four schools which are not um, maintaining single sex spaces such as changing rooms mm. or toilets. Which of course, they are required to do in law. I mean, this isn't this is not saying that you know you can't create a different area where you know some children who may be experiencing this distress may get changed. But like, there's that right to single sex spaces is very important. Yes. You know, we've got vulnerable children going through puberty. You know, young girls going through puberty you know, vulnerable and being forced to share changing rooms with, you know, with biological males. Yes. That can't be and we've seen already uh, cases where that has gone pretty badly wrong, uh, where a lot of, um, you know, children are mixing in areas where they shouldn't really be mixing. A lot of girls getting embarrassed by boys trying to take pictures of them and all that kind of thing, yeah. you know. And you're absolutely right, I think, to say that they're doing it probably not out of a sense of mischief or, or badness. They're trying to be good, but it sort of tells you how confused our society has become because in order not to offend anyone at all, people are actually offending everyone. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the things we found um, and uh, is that, you know, I think a lot of teachers maybe feel quite uncomfortable or uncom you know, not confident in doing this. And yeah. what they've effectively done is they've outsourced this almost to campaigning charitable organisations which are pushing very sort of unsavoury material, yeah. material which is not in keeping with the government's guidelines on this, which are promoting very strange ideas around gender that actually, you know, put children at risk. And these have almost been imported hook, line and sinker without the school taking responsibility for its ultimate safeguarding responsibilities in terms of what's taught, what its policies are, and you know how to protect children and act in accordance with the right. law. And is, as, as you are looking at the, the law and how the law actually operates, I mean, what can a parent do, for example, if uh, he or she were to discover that something had happened in the school regarding their own child's um, gender and their own yeah. child's kind of view? I mean, are, do the parents have rights here? Um, Yes, they do. They do, and I think you know, children should be sorry. Parents should be forthright about about those, and demanding to know what is happening. Our parents do have a right to see RSHE materials. They have to go onto the school premises at the moment. We don't think that's acceptable in our report. Mm. We say all the materials that are taught should be published online, but. You know, as it is, you can at least see them if you go onto the school premises. And we're also calling for an independent review, which can't happen, um, you know, it can't happen soon enough, really. There's a proper independent review going into schools and looking at how we got here. And I think as my colleague Lottie Moore, who wrote the report, said, this has all come up in the last five years. It's yeah. been very sudden. There's been no real 
debate on this yeah. and we need to get get to the bottom of it. I mean, a similar thing's happening in America, isn't it, where you've got people like Ron DeSantis kind of interfering, not interfering, but saying, look, you know, traditionally families should have more of a role in, in knowing what, they, what their kids' sex education is for a start. And certainly there was a backlash, I think, in Virginia, um, where a governor stood for families and said, look, we cannot have this, um, you know, kind of gender reassignment teaching going on because it's yeah, not I mean, what, what we expect. And so there has been a sort of political uh, backlash, if you like, in America. There hasn't quite been that here yet. Not yet. And I think absolute transparency is what I would say. I think if you ever get to a situation where a school or an external organisation says, we will not let parents mm. see what we're teaching their children, that is very obviously suspicious. Yes. You know, what have they got to hide? You should be comfortable showing parents what your children are being taught, whether that's in maths or in history, and the same in RSHE. If someone will not show parents what their children are being taught, I think we have a right to be suspicious there. Yeah, and what if you say to the school, I'd rather my child wasn't in those particular classes? Can you do that? Can you opt out of them? Unfortunately, you can't. The government removed the right to opt out um, out, out of these rec- um, recently, two or three years ago. Mm. So you, you don't have that right, unfortunately. But I think I, I would focus less on that and more about getting the system to work for everyone. Yes. OK. Well, the report is available. I dare say from if anybody wants to actually get their hands on the whole thing, where do they do that? Um, on our website, if you type in policy exchange, it will be um, into Google. You'll find it. OK. Very- Great stuff. Brilliant. Ian, thank you very much indeed. Ian Mansfield, Director of Research at Policy Exchange, who have done this remarkable report, really, because if you think about it, um, you know, as recently as, as Ian said, as five years ago, this was never a thing. This was not a thing at all. I started to hear about this from people uh, who had their kids at private school because they were saying that, you know, it was actually the private school kids who were becoming more and more kind of likely to think that changing their gender or questioning their gender or becoming non-binary was kind of a trendy thing to do and an awful lot of people were doing it um but it seems now to have reached into all sorts of other places 40 percent of schools operating policies of gender self-identification and literally encouraging your child so if you've got stories on that we'll take them please 0344 499 is the number mel stride is currently speaking in the house of commons uh, on the works and pensions situation let's have a listen Deaths of despair in the uk it's not simply because social care provision has been so savaged it's because Poverty makes people ill quicker, and it means people die sooner. And after 13 years, wages are stagnant and jobs insecure. Too much housing in the private rented sector is damp and squalid. Today, there are 400,000 more pensioners in relative poverty, a million more children in poverty, half a million children destitute without a bed to sleep in tonight or a hot dinner in their stomach after 13 years of the Conservatives. So today's announcement that they are not going ahead with accelerating the state pension age is welcome and it's the right one. But it is the clearest admission yet that on life expectancy, that a rising tide of poverty is dragging life expectancy down for so many and stalling life expectancy, going backwards in some of the poorest communities, is a damning indictment of 13 years of failure which the Minister should have acknowledged and apologised for today. Secretary of State. Well, Madam Deputy Speaker, can I welcome the fact that my, uh, the, the Right Honourable Gentleman has uh, broadly welcomed the decisions that I've set out uh, in my uh, statement. 
Um, can I just uh, address a couple of the points that he raises? One is uh, around uh, poverty. Uh, and uh, as we're particularly focused on pensioners, perhaps pensioner poverty, uh, a situation that has improved. In fact, poverty has improved right across the board since 2009-10, with some fairly dramatic reductions of the level of both absolute uh, and relative po poverty across that period, not least because of the uh, policies pursued by this uh, government. Uh, he suggests that we are something of an outlier in terms of the flattening of the increase uh, in the expectations of, of uh, life, uh, uh, the length of life uh, in the future. Um, that is uh, simply not the case. It is, as I said earlier, an international phenomenon uh, that this has been happening. He raised a couple of questions which I would like to address, Madam Deputy Speaker. Firstly, he asked uh, whether it was the case that uh, a move of the rise of the uh, pension age to 68 uh, was possible along the lines of, I think, the, the Cridland recommendations of 2037 to 30. Uh, nine. Uh, given that we have made a commitment to a 10-year notice period, um, that would suggest that if the next review, and I say if, uh, it is for others to decide this in the course of time, we're in, say, 2026, and that would indeed uh, bring those dates uh, as, as possible, but of course it wouldn't uh, preclude decisions uh, being taken that were for dates uh, further out. This is uh, actually than worse than uh, the... The screwed up Lib Dem video. I think we shouldn't bother listening to this. I thought we were supposed to be making some kind of announcement. What are they doing? You know, maybe they should all retire and give us all a break. Mel Stride reviews the state pension age, it says. Great. Let me know when you've finished. Uh, this is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Thursday Club coming up very soon with Helena Nicklin. And I'm delighted to say uh, that Helena Nicklin is involved uh, in what I'm about to mention to you, which is, of course, the Dine and Disco event, which is taking place on Saturday, the 17th of June. Virgin Radio's very own Chris Evans um, has, gonna, has said he's going to do the final ever Dine and Disco uh, featuring Rod Stewart in his own back garden, taking place on Saturday, 17th of June. This morning, 50 pairs of tickets were all auctioned off and they raised a grand total of £1.7 million for charity which is pretty well done. Uh, one pair of tickets that people could donate as little as £10 for to enter the draw has raised over 17000 with the full total still to come. I think you can still get tickets so check out Virgin Radio's Twitter account uh, or Virgin Radio uh, on the website as well and you can see uh, whether you can get yourself along to that but um, Helena will be there as well. Um, First of all, before we do anything else, let me just read you this about wind turbines. Phil says, each wind turbine requires 900 tonnes of steel, 2,500 tonnes of concrete and 45 tonnes of non-recyclable plastic to build them. They have a lifetime of only 25 years and need up to 700 gallons of oil for the gears and hydraulic systems, which must be replaced every year. Must be the way forward. That's brilliant. I mean, how green is that? So they need 700 gallons of oil, 900 tonnes of steel... 2,500 tonnes of concrete and 45 tonnes of plastic. The green future is ours. Unbelievable. Let's talk to Ryan, who's in Warwickshire. Hello, Ryan. Hello, mate. How you doing, sir? I'm all right, Mike. What I, want to, what I want to talk about is yeah. this migrant crisis. Yes. Right? And it really hurts me because we pay, what, £7 million a day? Something like that. It's, what, £2.5 billion a year. Yeah. And then you've got, you've got you know, ex-servicemen living on the streets. Yeah. Right? 
Well, I mean, I was speaking to a mate of mine uh, yesterday, um, um, Hugh Andre, who, who is a man who um, looks after ex-servicemen and gets them into jobs and stuff like that. And he said, isn't it ridiculous that they're now going to take over barracks, disused barracks, to put these people in when they could be putting the ex-servicemen in them? I know, I know. And I mean, it, 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 it's wrong to me, right? When you've got old-age pensioners who can't put two bars on the fire yeah. in, in the winter, right? Right. The government not paying for that. They'd rather... These woke people, who, who you know, say you, you should take them. I don't mind taking them. Huh. I really don't. I'm not, you know, I'm not against immigration. What I'm, and what I'm against, right, is the quality of the people that's coming. Yeah. They're like. Well, we don't know, know who they are. No, it, it's, it's turning our country, right, it, it, into what, a migrant camp. Yeah. It really is. And, it, and they can't it, it, say any more as well that, oh, it's a very small number, because it ain't a small number. 160,000 people, right? Yeah. At the moment, just waiting to be given permission to stay. And they'll probably yeah. all get permission to stay. And that's what's frightening, because it's not just uh, them coming over. It's, it's that then they need national health service. They need yep. policing. They need all the stuff that, you know, that's being cut. And also, if they are given the right to live here, they'll then be able to send for their family, so they can send for another four, five, six people each. Oh, no, it's, it, it's terrible. I mean, the, I, I just want to grab, right, the Prime Minister around the throat and say, you know, get a grip, yeah. man, what's going on? I know. I just want you to tell me why you think what you do is acceptable. It isn't. Yes. It, you, and you the know, people I'm, of this country deserve better. You know, it's nothing to do with being racist. It's not to, anything to do with not being welcoming. But simply speaking, as I've said many times, Ryan, and I know you're a new caller to the station, the point is this. You wouldn't leave your door open and let loads and loads of people come in and then when the house is full, buy another house to get more of them in, would you? No. And I certainly wouldn't pay for it either. No. Why they're here. But unfortunately, that's what we're doing. It's completely nuts. And it's only now, because it is such a visible problem for so many people, because they see what's going on in their own towns, that the government's even doing anything. Because for I years, know. they did nothing at all. I know, I know. And, and, it, and we, it, by it, the way, we were the only people going on about it. Yeah, it's, it's very divisive, though, because some people who wasn't against this kind of thing before have now realised how, you know, how bad it really is. Yeah, totally. It really is. It's a nightmare. Ryan, listen, I appreciate your call. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, a couple of you have got things to say um, about the um, the transgender situation in our schools. Let me just read you a couple of these. Sam says, my experience on gender identity is that it was more prominent in her state school. Uh, she went to private for sixth form and it wasn't so bad. It's become the trendy thing to do uh, to be noticed, like so many things promoted on TikTok, etc. Without that thing, uh, they wouldn't be noticed. And uh, Kevin says, hi, Mike. The fact that your last guest said that children aren't able to opt out of gender classes in school what's the betting that that is not the case in Rotherham, Batley and Rochdale well that may well be and Mark in Becky says, Beckles rather says roads are getting worse so where is all our car tax money and fuel duty going? That's a good question Simon's in Basingstoke Simon, good morning, good afternoon I should say uh, Yeah, good afternoon Mike uh, I was going to suggest that you read uh, the document the government's published today but I, I don't want to spoil your day um, <laughs> it's, it's Nothing it's spoils my day. If I let anything spoil my day, I'd always be miserable because there's always something. Well, I, I think this will make you particularly angry. Just some highlights. Um, the UK is going to be donating uh, £11.6 billion uh, to the £100 billion global climate 
climate finance goal, oh, i.e. the reparations for... Oh, this is the reparations for, 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 what, for what we did for actually being more civilised than everywhere else, right? Yeah, exactly. We're also, they're also going to spend... Uh, they want 600,000 heat pumps installed by 2028. And they've actually admitted that they've taken 80, uh, £80 billion pounds from electricity uh, bill payers to fund uh, renewable energy since uh, 2010. Uh, this is insanity. And it's not just going to affect us in terms of bills here. I was shocked by how little coverage it got. Mm. But yesterday, Saudi Arabia announced that it's going to apply to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is basically China, Russia, or, uh, several uh, Central Asian republics. And that means that that organization will now control 20% of the world's oil and gas supplies. Be because of the insanity, we've literally told... Like the entire developing world, we don't want to buy your commodities anymore, mm. particularly uh, oil and gas. And they're going, OK, then we'll do a deal with China. And that's going to have geopolitical implications that are going to be enormous. Grant Shapps has got five O-levels. I don't even think he's got any A-levels. This man should not be... I don't think he's got any in science, is he? ...in this country. I don't think he's got he, any he, in science. He keeps telling us that the science is telling you that we must take it to net zero. Not one of these politicians, right, can explain what net zero even is. All it seems to be to them is a transactional statement, you know. So, therefore, we will sort of nullify our carbon use by doing something else. You know, it's like the same... It's like Coldplay telling you that they've nullified their carbon footprint by planting a few trees in Sri Lanka. It's true, Mike. Well, I actually have a degree in physics from University College, and anyone who tells me science is settled, I will call them outright a liar. Yeah. Because science is never settled. Science always changes, and that's why science is such a powerful tool. If the evidence changes, if a theory is proven to be wrong, it doesn't matter how how senior the people that put forward that theory is, mm. that theory is abandoned and a new theory is developed. Yeah. So uh, I was probably one of the first people, they were calling it global warming when I was studying it, and none of the predictions that were made in the, in the late 1980s have come true. Right. The, 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 the very concept of this, I think it's very, this, the whole green issue suits certain nations very, very well. China could not have expanded the way it has and created its industrial base so quickly. It now produces, out of every uh, 10 industrial goods that are manufactured, China produces 4% of them by value. Right. That could never have happened if the Western nations had not pursued green policies and basically priced themselves out yeah. of the market. Right. And become totally reliant on, on unsecure or insecure forms of energy. Simon, it's a very good point. Thank you for making it. This has got a bit of breaking news. Apparently, uh, Charles Bronson, uh, the most notorious prisoner of all time, has lost the parole board bid to be freed from jail. Uh, probably nobody's going to be very surprised by that. You might remember a few weeks ago when the parole hearing started, uh, we heard quite often from Charles Bronson, uh, who was speaking uh, to the people who were supposed to be releasing him. Um, and he wasn't being 
what you might say, particularly cooperative. Um, he has failed in his bid for freedom after not being granted parole following nearly 50 years behind bars. He's been behind bars longer than anybody has ever been behind bars in this country, despite the fact uh, that his original imprisonment was actually not for a massively serious offence. He's been called one of Britain's most violent offenders because most of the trouble he's got into is actually since he's been in jail. Uh, he spent most of the past 48 years behind bars, apart from two brief periods of freedom uh, during which he reoffended. But he's mainly known for taking people hostage in prison. Um, I think he once greased himself up and ran naked through the jail so nobody could catch him uh, as he basically attacked loads of people. He's done 11 different hostage takings, nine different sieges in prison. Um, and of course, uh, he's been outside very briefly and committed thefts, firearms and violent offences as well. Um, he is, I mean, you have to say, without wishing to in any way kind of, you know, um, glamorise him, he's basically an incredibly um, well-known prisoner, I suppose, and, and quite a character, I suppose you might say. Uh, we'll find out from Holly Hudson what the details are shortly. We'll also talk to Graham. Stay where you are in this clinically uh, lovely part of the world. Elizabeth's in North Yorkshire as well. Uh, this is Talk TV. We'll come back to all of you after this. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.